Hi, everyone. My name is Julia Stiglitz, and welcome to the GSV Accelerate podcast. This podcast was taken from a fireside chat that I had with President Joseph Faun of Northeastern University at an event we hosted in Boston. Northeastern University is one of the most forward-looking universities, especially around bridging the gap between higher education and work. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And uh, thank you for being with us here with us this evening. Great to be with you. And so everyone, please feel free to eat and more importantly, drink your wine as we have this conversation. And uh, I look forward to this conversation. Great. Um, so to start, uh, why did you write this book? What was it that inspired you? You know, we, at Northeastern, we have a system of experiential education that combines uh, classroom experience with the world experience. Students go on uh, long-term uh, internships called co-ops for six months and we do it in 136 countries. So, we, the future of work is always important to us, and the change is important to us, and then we started thinking about uh, the, you know, AI and the implication uh, and the impact of AI on society. So, that's what led me to write uh, Robot Proof, uh, which focuses on uh, higher education in the age of artificial intelligence. That's the story. Uh, so one of the one of the uh, messages that you have in the book is about humanics. Yes. Uh, and at first brush, this seems very similar to what you would get at a liberal arts school, which is uh, what I attended. Yeah. Uh, but that's not really what you mean by it. Can you explain what do you mean by it and how does it work? So if you allow me, Julia, before I start talking about humanics, I'm saying the, now you know, we we live in a new world. You all know this world. You is. You know, the world is, this new world of AI is disrupting the workforce. We, we heard about the number of jobs that are going to disappear up to 40% in the next uh, 20 years. In the emerging world, it's 70%. And at the same time, there are going to be new jobs. So the question is, how are we becoming robot-proof? And I'm asserting that the mission of higher education is to help us become robot-proof. And in order to become robot-proof, you don't become robot-proof uh, once for all. It's a journey. It's a lifelong journey. So you, you need what I, I'm asserting is that you need to start by uh, a, a mastering humanics. What is humanics? Is the integration of three literacies, uh, technological literacy, understanding machines and how to interact with machines, uh, data literacy, understanding the sea of information generated by these machines, and the human literacy, which is what we humans can do that machines are not good at and will not be good at for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. The ability, for instance, to look you in the eye to see whether you, uh, you agree with me, the ability to be innovative like many of you, to be creative, the ability to be empathetic, to be culturally agile, to be global, etc., etc. So what I'm saying is, humanics is really the integration of the three literacies, and that's what every learner should start with. And, and how is that different? How do you see that as different from you know the core curriculum at a liberal arts school? Or be, because usually it is siloed. You know, the, you know, you study on one side, you study you know Spinoza or ethics or whatever. 
and uh, you know on the other side you start you have a course in uh, chemistry or physics or uh, in uh, IT or tech whatever or data big data here the whole idea is how can you look at a curriculum that is fully integrated where the whole you know every endeavor every course is really melding and integrating all these and, and that, that's quite different than how faculty go through the system and what they get their PhDs in, which is, you know, in one discipline. So how, how has that worked at Northeastern, and what has the receptivity been of the faculty there? You know, we, we live in, a, in general, in higher education, in a very conservative world. We like to change the world, but we don't want to change ourselves. And that's your question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in some ways... What is happening, what has happened is, uh, the, you know, the courses uh, that have been built have been built by faculty. And um, in some ways, the recipe is very simple. The mistake that higher education makes in general is we want to vote on everything before we start doing it. So everybody has to say yes, consensus, whether it's a faculty senate or whether it's a, a different body. Rick is here. He can tell you more about that. Uh, Whereas, in fact, what we try to do is look at it differently, saying, if you really believe in a culture of experimentation and innovation, and you really believe in an academic freedom, who would like to uh, be uh, launching those innovations? Who who wants to own them? And we, then they become, you know, those faculty that came together became the proof that, you know, showed that this model can work, and they attracted the rest. So, and that's, that's, a, that's a recipe. It's very simple. Don't go for a vote. Don't go for a consensus. Interesting. And, and um, you know, I'm curious, you touched on this idea of experiential education, which is something that Northeastern has had for over 100 years. Um, but when you came in, it's something that you really championed and expanded. How does that work at Northeastern? You know, this, I mentioned that becoming robot-proof is a journey. And the journey starts by mastering uh, humanics. Now, you can spend a lot of time reading books about innovation, entrepreneurship, cultural agility. It doesn't make you an entrepreneur, an innovator, or culturally agile. Mm. And it, you, what you need to do is test yourself, practice that. Mm. And that's where experiential education comes into play. So what is experiential education? Is the, the integration of the classroom experience with the world experience. Now, when students go on those co-ops with six-month uh, internships in, uh, those all over the, the world, what they are completely immersed in the environment. You know, it's not academic tourism. They are working, and, and before they go, we try to help them understand you know, the NGO, the company they're going to, uh, to be part of. And while they're there, they have a mentor, and then we integrate that when they come back. Mm-hmm. But, so what do they, what's the impact? The impact is they start learning about themselves, mm-hmm. what they are good at, what they are not good at, what, you know, work in team settings, understand others, mm-hmm. and uh, be culturally agile, seeing gaps and saying, ah, I see a gap, I can uh, go build my own uh, startup, whatever it is. At the same, so essentially it has a transformational impact for them. But recall the whole notion of humanics. The whole notion of humanics is ultimately to try to do something, to focus on what we humans do that machines cannot do as well and will not be able to do in the foreseeable future. 
Machines do not know how to transpose the, you know, their knowledge from and test it from a context to another context to another context. We are very good as, as humans at negotiating the infinity of contexts and learning from them. That's experiential education. So experiential education, like humanics, is giving us an edge. So you see, the whole idea is very simple. Do what machines cannot do. Focus on what we humans can do that machines cannot duplicate. That's experiential education. Can you give us an example of what that might look like for an individual student? Oh, it's, it's very clear. Uh, you know, you have a student, for instance, going to Shanghai or Cape Town, and they are immersed in a company or an NGO. The student may have studied finance, engineering, English. Uh, we a real ex you know, a real example of a student who comes with a, from a humanities background, English, in, uh, and went to Bosnia, you know, and looked at precisely build, using... The, for instance, the uh, uh, literary criticism uh, methods that she analyzed to build um, as a, a, you know, an NGO focusing on deciphering uh, fake news and pointing that those fake news uh, exist. That's a notion, that's a transfer, it's called knowledge transfer. You're, tr you're transferring your knowledge from this domain to a completely different domain. That's what machines cannot do. Where I can give you examples when they, you know, come back and they start companies because, you know, they, they see a gap or an NGO. That's the idea. The idea focused on what we can do that machines cannot duplicate. Therefore, that's our sweet spot and they cannot make us obsolete in those domains. And what percentage of students go through this, the co-op? 97 percent. 97 percent. Yeah, 97. And it's not, it's not mandatory. But if you go there, you know that you're going to take advantage of that. Huh. Interesting. Um, I'm curious, you know, in what other ways do you see corporates as being needed to be involved in higher education? So what, you know, besides students going out and taking the internships or doing this experiential learning within corporations? Yeah, there, there are many ways, but let me focus on the third uh, step in terms of uh, becoming robot-proof. We're all becoming obsolete every day. And, you know, we all need to re-educate ourselves, to reskill ourselves, to upskill ourselves. So it's a lifelong journey. Why? Because machines are becoming smarter and smarter. They will displace more jobs, and new jobs will be created. Therefore, lifelong learning is, going, is an imperative. And many of you are capitalizing on lifelong learning. Now, my, lifelong learning has not been part of the core mission of higher education. In higher education, we focused essentially on two dimensions. You know, and it, uh, teaching undergraduate students, 18 to 22, and doing research and PhD. Now, if you look at it from this perspective, 74% of the learners are non-traditional lifelong learners in the United States already, and that's what the growth is going to be. Yeah, and this is not surprising. We're an aging population. The undergraduate population is stable or shrinking. Mm -hmm. Now, from this perspective, life, if lifelong learning has to, be, to become part of the core mission of higher education, and higher education, frankly, looked at uh, lifelong learning as a second-class operation. You do it, and you make money out of it, but don't say that it's part of uh, what we do. Mm -hmm. Many universities 
uh, have done that and continue to do that. So, so we, suppose we say lifelong learning is going to be part of our core mission. That's only the beginning. It's, it's easier said than done. Because when you work with learners who are adults, they are short on time and long on experience. Therefore, you cannot say, I'm going to build my curricula and they will come. You have to sit down with the employers, understand what their needs are, and see what, they can, what you can provide. And you have to provide it not on a notion, based on a notion of a degree, but based on the needs. I may have you know, this need today, I may have this need to do, tomorrow. You, know, you all uh, know about certificates, nano-certificates, stackable certificates. And you have to look at delivery. You have to deliver it on demand. And you have to... So the notion of personalization in lifelong learning and customization is something that universities don't know how to do well. And that's the opportunity. And that's where the employers ha have to be at the, at the table because it's a lesson in humility for higher education. You know, who are you to come and tell us what, uh, what your people need? But ultimately, you know better what they need. I'm curious, you, know, you talked about personalization, customization, uh, being responsive to the needs of employers. Is higher education actually the institution that should be taking this on? Like, if, are they, is this, are, as you think, you know, if we, we can agree that there's this need for lifelong learning, but is higher education the well, right institution? Well, frankly, here you're touching on, uh, on something important. And if you look at, in the United States, what's happening, and what's happening in our country, uh, the average tenure of an employee in the United States, guess how long it is, Julia? Four years. You're optimistic. It's not seven years, it's four years. In Silicon Valley, how long is it? Two. Now, if you think about it, you know, the companies have less and less of an incentive to retrain and educate their people. That's point one. And we are seeing actually a decline. We studied that. We are not the only ones. There is a decline. The second thing also is that there is a gig economy. And the gig economy is increasing. And who is going to help? Obviously not the employer, because they are self-employed. The third thing is that when you talk to various employers who have huge needs in terms of re-educating, reskilling, they tell you, you know, we are forced to do it because you are not meeting our needs. This is not our sweet spot. This is not our core competence. We prefer to work with you, and you make it happen for us. So that's the situation. We are, that's our core competence in higher education. By default, we are also it. So do you think that higher education is going to move in the direction of providing more lifelong learning? Is that, is that something that higher education is going to rise to the challenge of? I saw changes. I mean, higher lifelong learning used to be poo-pooed. Ah, we don't want to do that. Okay? And now more and more people are jumping at it and saying, ah, but that's an opportunity. You know, you know various uh, universities are saying, ah, I can offer a degree in computer science, or if they start with Coursera or edX or whatever, then they can come and, and uh, finish uh, with me. That will be the first steps. I can capitalize on that. The, the attitude is changing. And so there is much more receptivity. 
And, and usually, being in a very conservative, conservative field, you know, you have people who are doing it uh, and taking advantage of this situation. And, you know, whether they are, and usually they are the for-profits, but now you are seeing universities establishing themselves and do, and do it. And, and it ranges from universities that are not name brand to universities that are uh, seeing this opportunity and doing it. So, yes, the, I, I would see that. But look at it from a different perspective, Julia. If indeed 74% of the learners are lifelong learners, you're ignoring the large majority of your potential students. What structural shifts would they need to make in order to make that a reality? And what have you, at Northeastern, what have been the biggest shifts that you've had to make within, the, within Northeastern in order to start addressing the needs of lifelong learners, which are quite different than the needs of an 18-year-old yeah. you know, residential college student? Yeah. I think with lifelong learning, what you need to do is... Uh, first of all, you know, everything we're providing is experiential. Mm. So we built our own online uh, hybrid platforms that are all experiential, mm. you know, from the certificates to the, to the master's to whatever, and to the doctoral degree. Uh, the second is that we uh, launched a certain number of campuses in Seattle, in Silicon Valley, in uh, Charlotte, in Toronto, in Canada, and now in London, the whole idea is to build a global uh, system uh, in order to meet the needs of uh, the learner wherever they are and whenever they need it, they need it uh, that, whenever they need it. At the same time, it, you know, being in a separate environment every time, you know, it allows you to understand the ecosystem and to understand what is needed in this ecosystem rather than rather than exporting what you are doing here in Boston or what you are doing elsewhere. So it allows us in each place to understand the needs, to understand the ecosystem, and to build curricula and programs and offerings that are customized to the environment, customized to uh, the company, or personalized to the need of the individual. So I can give you an example, a clear example of that. So it's not an abstract uh, discussion. I can give you several, but let me focus on one. In Seattle, we were, we were working with the uh, Amazons of this world, and they challenged us, and they said, we don't have enough of a pipeline of computer scientists in the nation. Can you create a new pipeline for us? So we worked with them. They were seated at the table, not as beautiful as this one, uh, and we devised a program where we take a cohort of 20 students with a BA or a BS degree in English, in chemistry, in physics, in economics, and so on and so forth, nationwide. They give them the long-term co-ops internships of for 12, 16 months, and, and they are paid, all these are paid. And while they are there, we give them also a master's in uh, uh, computer science. You know, integrating their, their experience on the workplace. So what did we do? We created with them a new pipeline for computer science. It allowed uh, uh, people, it allowed women and underrepresented minority to move into the tech fields too. And, you know, uh, I know that the Gates Foundation is here, 
But, you know, we receive a lot of support from foundations because of that. But the upshot is that we were able to innovate because we sat down with the employer. And, you know, traditionally I would have said, okay, let's go build uh, computer science masters or certificates, stackable certificates. That is completely different. So that's the example. Understand the need of the place. See how you can, we can do it. The other aspect is that we're delivering also some programs in the workplace. I think the uh, Kemi Jonah is here. He's uh, part of uh, our endeavor. But the, uh, you know, there, is a, there was a, a program at, uh, the, uh, it's, you know, launched by uh, the Department of Education and where they challenged us to do things with the employers. We did one with GE, we're providing advanced nano manufacturing and advanced manufacturing in the workplace too, and teaming up with other players. So the, the, it, that's a partnership with employers. What do you see, let's say higher education doesn't respond to this. They, they say that lifelong learning really isn't our core mission. Um, and startups who are, who are the ones that right now are really responding to it, uh, what do you see the consequence of that? Like, do, what if higher education doesn't respond and it's mostly for-profit startups who, who are, are dominating the lifelong Look, learning space? Y- you know, in some ways, every time you have a startup mm-hmm. in ed- education, and I'm simplifying and it's great that it's happening, mm-hmm. is because there is a gap that higher education is not meeting. So if you start looking at, at it from this perspective... You know, there is a gap. Now, what happens? Either they take over everything or they partner with universities. And we are seeing that, that, hap- that happening too. They partner with universities and they, be, you know, univer- let me give you an, a, a specific example. For instance, at some point there was a big uh, excitement about boot camps in, uh, they, you know, in uh, coding and etc. So, some universities didn't offer that, but then they started building partnerships with those uh, boot camps uh, and saying, you know, that's, you can start there and then we will continue. That's a, that's, a, that's a very simple example. You know, but you have to be always in tune with the employer because many employers are telling us now, if we don't recruit people from a boot camp anymore because they can start but they cannot progress. So that's why you have to be constantly in touch. So if a university doesn't respond, unless it has an enormous endowment, it is in jeopardy. And that's why you are seeing that many universities uh, and colleges are not doing well. You know, we are seeing for the small liberal arts, and that's not good, a wave of acquisition, mergers, closures, etc., and then you are seeing that last year, what is interesting is only 34%, and I repeat, only 34% of colleges and universities filled their seats. I'm going to open it up for questions. Could you identify yourself, please, sure. and say what you do quickly? Yeah, uh, Philip Schmidt, I'm at the MIT Media Lab. Um, I'm curious uh, to hear you talk a little bit about what structural changes you had to make at Northeastern to be able to generate these innovative new models. These what? These innovative new models. Okay, look, there is a huge literature on change that you can read. And the literature on change is saying always the same thing. You need to create a dedicated team. And, you know, why? Because the performance team is really busy, busy 
working on making the floppy disk even better. So what you want is a dedicated team. That's the notion of saying who, you know, and let the dedicated team be at the beginning isolated to run with it. And then the dedicated team, what happened, so that's how we started. Then the dedicated team, the operation became larger and it became itself a performance team. So we had to disrupt it by constantly creating and launching new dedicated teams. That's what I'm saying to you is not very profound. You know, any uh, in in business schools they always teach that, and there are books about it. So that's what you need to do. Uh, We can do one more question. You're, You're you're on you're live. Everybody in the world is listening to you. So could you that happens every yourself? day? Why should this day be different from all other yeah. days? Uh, Daniel Pianco, University Ventures. Kind of a corollary question. University of what? University Ventures. We're an investment yeah. firm focused on education. Um, corollary question: That you have had though the, the for Northeastern, the um, uh, internship or externship program has been its bread and butter for as long as I can, you know, since the 50s, I think. You That's look a, young. You're younger. You were not... Uh, I had hair then. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. My question is very simple. For something like that that has been so successful for so many years and been such a calling card for, for Northeastern, why haven't other universities or other organizations really embrace that and other corporations as well. It's still so unique at Northeastern. Okay, in, in, that's a great question. And in some ways we have many... First of all, let me mention that we had to change our conception of uh, co-op and internships because in, in the past, in the, you know, the, uh, there were two worlds, the world of the classroom and the world of uh, the uh, internships, the co-ops. So, you know, we, we, we really did a couple of things. One is we globalized co-op. And second, we said co-op is a different model of learning and it's experiential learning. And so we worked a lot with, we built a learning specialist center, you know, with cognitive, you know, uh, neuroscientists, with uh, uh, psychologists, with learning specialists to integrate the two. So that's the first one. Uh, So even the notion of uh, uh, co-op by itself is not static. We even, uh, this uh, last year and this year, we gave all our students uh, an app called Sail that will allow them to determine their, to determine their learning objectives and, it's a, uh, and then offer them possibilities, experiential classroom. It's a coaching app for life. So it stays with you wherever you are. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I see many universities, uh, uh, American, and domestic, and international visiting to try to, to understand what to do. The barrier to entry is... Uh, ultimately us, the faculty. Why? Because, you know, you have to prepare the learners to go into the real world, into an NGO, into a a company. While while they're there, you have to put up with a mentor and that the mentor also help you in uh, the integration. And when they come back, you want the uh, students 
uh, to really integrate that in, uh, as part of their experience. Now, when they come back and you have a student, you have students who work in uh, uh, Wall Street or who work in Shanghai, and they lived uh, in Wall Street, the crash, and you are discerning and analyzing the crash, I'll tell you, no, no, this is not what I saw. When you talk about the Chinese economy and the Chinese way of life or whatever it is, they say, no, we lived it in a completely different way. They get out of, your, of their comfort zone and they get, get you out of, the, of your comfort zone. We are not used to that as faculty. We think that we are the center of the world. We, you know, the, the term of student-centered education is something that's a cliche. But you have to, to, to really see it when the student takes charge. And that's what happens. That's why I think the barrier to entry is really us, cultural. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Julia. Thank you, everybody.